Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. Today, I'm talking with the playwright Aaron Courtney, author of many plays, including A Map of Virtue, Demon Baby, and Anne, Fran, and Marianne, which we're talking about today. Aaron Courtney, welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. I'd love to talk a bit about your kind of journey as a playwright. So what was your kind of first experience of theater as a child? Oh, I love that question. I love asking other people that question. Um, I have a couple, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go with um, a non traditional theater moment, which was I grew up in the beach area in Southern California, Hermosa Beach, and my um, dad <laughs> started this little volleyball tournament at the beach. Uh, I guess around Fourth of July, and we would do a parade. The kids would do a parade where we would like put streamers on our bikes and we would like make, you know, flags and like just parade up and down the strand and someone would play music. And then, um, you know, as an adult, I started to do backyard theater with my husband, Scott Atkins for like eight years in our backyard in Brooklyn, we would have an all day kind of festival of experimental work and beer and hot dogs and, um, I, and then I found that picture of the day of the parade we did when we were little kids. And I was like, Oh, like that, that was maybe my first theatrical event, like creating a public <laughs> art performance that for no reason, like it, it was a volleyball tournament, but the children were like, we must be involved as well. And we must put streamers on our bicycles and we must wear interesting outfits. So, um, so that, and then I will say a second one was seeing a, a early Sam Shepard play in the 80s, because I grew up in also in L- L.A. area, and a, an acting teacher of mine was in it. I think it was Curse of the Starving Class, maybe. And anyways, it was just, we were in a tiny little theater, and it was so visceral. And I remember there was this moment where the character keeps opening the refrigerator looking for food, and all there is is cabbages in there. and um, <laughs> And so this... The futility of like, even though you know there's only cabbages in there, you still keep looking. Uh, and so I didn't quite understand that I would become a playwright. But then in then in college, I took a playwriting class. And that's when I was like, oh, this is this. That was kind of the beginning of actually becoming a playwright. But but I thought there was something just kind of uh, visceral and raw about being in that little theater and being that intimate, the intimacy. So I guess two different one was like a kind of public joyful performance and one was like a intimate personal ritual. I definitely feel like there's some Sam Shepard in your plays. Is that an influence that stayed with you? Um, you know, as I as I learned about more theater people, he he's definitely stayed with me. He was definitely a primary source. Um, but then as I like started to learn more about other people like Paula Vogel and Adrian Kennedy and um sort of more, uh, well, like queer artists and artists who were 
uh, you know, exploring more diverse stories, he became less of an influence. But but he certainly has always been an influence around his uh, very adventurous personal spirit and and very um, visual storytelling. So yeah, he has remained. <laughs> So um, you you mentioned you took a playwriting class in college, uh, and you also got an MFA from Brooklyn College. Is that mm-hmm. right? That's right. So what was that experience like? Uh, well, both were phenomenal experiences, and cha- both those experiences changed my life. So for undergrad, I went to Brown, and I was a painter, and I loved painting, and I was taking – I was a visual art major there. And I took a playwriting class taught by Donna Di Novelli. She was a um, graduate student studying with Paula Vogel, who had just started the MFA program there. And I was blown away the way Donna taught, which was a related to how Paula taught, which was about, um, sort of non-literal storytelling, which also goes back to Sam Shepard, like allowing things not to be literal, um, allowing pop culture to be part of the storytelling, but also sort of ancient, ancient Greek <laughs> storytelling. And uh, so I I immediately was drawn to it. And then I got to study with Paula Vogel as a, when I got to the advanced playwriting class. And that, that was quite transformative. And then I kept trying to be a painter uh, and was, you know, showing in galleries and um, museums, but uh, one museum, one museum. It sounds very fancy if it's more than one, but just one. And, uh, <laughs> And hey, I, I've never had any of my paintings <laughs> in any museum, so uh, you're well ahead of me. Yeah, so I was also mostly trying to be a painter, but also kind of secretly writing plays on the side. And then I started to do it more seriously. And then I was like, oh, I want to do this seriously, but I don't have really great role models who are doing experimental playwriting. Um, and so, and the dramaturgy around experimental playwriting is not as developed. Or I was having a hard time finding people who could push me further in, in my experiments. And so um, I always admired Mac Wellman's work and his, uh, I didn't, I didn't really know much about him as a teacher yet, but I knew his work was extremely adventurous and, and rigorous and risk-taking. And so um, I applied to study with him and then that was a game changer because one, he's an, he is an incredible teacher, but he also, brings very interesting people together. So through Brooklyn College, I met, you know, uh, every, well, then I began teaching there, but I met young Jean Lee and Thomas Bradshaw and Annie Baker. And then later I taught Haruna Lee and Tina Satter and Sybil Kempson. And so it just became, it was a real hotbed and, and it's still a hotbed for uh, innovative theater thinkers who, are playful and kind people as well as being uh, great experimenters. Yeah, I've really noticed that that the the people coming out of Brooklyn College is just a kind of an incredible uh, list of you know exciting young playwrights. I, I guess I want to know like what's going on in there. Like I think about the Tom Waits song, <laughs> "What's He Building in There," and I just want to know like what are you building in there? <laughs> that is so great. I love that song, by the way. Oh, it's, it's so good. Is, and it's like 20 seconds and you're like, I think it's a murder machine. And then a minute and you're like, it's definitely a murder machine. Yes, yes. Or some kind of a bomb, you know, <laughs> or who Something, knows. Yeah. But it's uh, it's a great song. Uh, it is a great, uh, even being inside 
the room where where you're curious about what happens. It 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 is not clear to clear what happens. Um, <laughs> so uh, I was there for 20 years. I just recently uh, got a new job at Northwestern. So now I'm happily um, teaching at Northwestern, and currently Tina Satter and Ann Washburn are are leading the workshop at Brooklyn College. But I, what happens? Well, when Mac was teaching, it was very. Um, he was a man of few words, but all of them were like these great, mysterious kind of cone riddles. Like you're like, like so I, he would give me a piece of advice and literally it would take me two years before I understood it. And then I would enact it and then, and then great things would happen. So, so he's a wonderful observer of um, people's, uh, who people are and, and the art they are trying to make and the art they are making. And so I, I feel like, one of his gifts and something I've tried to do as a teacher as well is to um, really observe the person and what they're passionate about and what they care about and what their voice is and what their idiosyncrasies are and what their interests are outside of theater and just continue to encourage and push them to be the most that thing and then to take the greatest risks in the work that are doing that thing. What are your sort of non-theatrical obsessions? Um, oh, I, well, one is definitely painting and visual art, uh, which is very aligned with, um, that is very aligned with theater. Uh, I also love repetition and pattern. I'm obsessed with, you know, looking for patterns in nature and looking for patterns in art and patterns in music and patterns in theater. And then, um, as you know, from this play, uh, neuroscience and well, neuroscience and mental health are just uh, great mysteries to me and, and also, uh, super things that have to do with super, uh, super superstitions. No, that's not the word supernatural, super like ghosts and, yeah. you know, elves and <laughs> fairies. So I guess, um, yeah, that kind of, oh, and now more recently, I'm very interested in tattooing and tattoos and I'm writing a musical with Max Vernon um, and developed with Ellie Heyman called uh, the Tattooed Lady, and um, and I have I have several tattoos, and I love I love tattoo art, and I have been um, learning more and more about the history of American tattooing in in writing that musical. One of the things that I think ties a lot of your work together is that it's sort of scary. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you're sort of intentionally interested in, or does that kind of just come in through the interest in the supernatural? <laughs> I love that question because actually most of the things that are in my work, I was unaware that I was doing it. Like, um, like I didn't really realize I was into symmetry until like three plays after I started being compulsive about symmetry. I didn't realize I was writing about, um, mental health until about six plays later. And then the scariness, I really was not conscious that I was writing scary plays, but I will say that I, uh, like most writers, probably all, almost all writers and that I know, <laughs> we have really um, kind of paranoid imaginations, and we we imagine sometimes like the scariest thing happening or the worst thing happening. And uh, so, for me and a lot of writers I know, when we sit down to write a play that allows the scariest thing to happen, it's very uh, liberating and it, it takes it outside of our psyche. So, um, so I like as a little kid. I, I would also just like imagine 
what would I do if someone broke in the house? And I would like imagine where I would hide and I'd had very elaborate plans. And I would also be like, I'm sure I'm not going to wake up in the morning. So I just need to kind of like appreciate this moment because probably I'll be killed in the night. <laughs> so, so I think those kind of thought processes lead you to become, you know, might, might lead you to write plays that are scary or films that are scary. Were you religious at all as a child? A little bit. I, my family is uh, Catholic and we did go, I was uh, baptized and confirmed and we went to church. I'm the youngest of four. And, uh, I think my parents were a lot more active in the church, but by the time they got to me, it was, <laughs> we were still going, but they're very liberal minded people. And, you know, the, obviously it's very complicated to be a Catholic person who is, who has a liberal agenda around identity and, you know, so, and around many, many things. So mm-hmm. uh, they liked the basic gist of it. And I like—I also like the basic gist of it. And I also appreciate the storytelling in Catholicism. I think um, there's some really good use of story. Um, but I also, I think the reason why the God, God is present in that Anne, Fran and Marianne play is that uh, it's such an important invisible force in our world and so I, one thing that all these topics have in common is like they're invisible. So like neuroscience to the common person is invisible. Ghosts are invisible. God's invisible. Depression's invisible or the thing that causes depression. So, um, yeah, I, I'm interested in how invisible things impact us so profoundly. I, I also asked about that because you mentioned being sure you weren't going to survive the night. And I remember for me, the like prayer of <laughs> if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to, to take. I, I It never would have occurred to me that I might die in the middle of the night if I hadn't been praying that I that if I die, I'll be taken to heaven. Okay, you're Weird so, idea to teach children. You're so right. Because <laughs> even though we did not pray a lot, of course I knew that prayer. And mm-hmm. I mean, you're right. I think that probably planted that seed. <laughs> you know, we're making breakthroughs. <laughs> um, so could you talk a bit about, more specifically, about the inspiration behind this play, Anne, Fran, and Marianne? Yes. Um, I was sort of, I didn't have an idea for a new play yet. And I was, you know, a finishing one and was just kind of, sometimes when I'm in that place, I just try to listen more to something that excites me. And I heard on NPR um, this journalist talking about the God helmet, which is in the play. And a lot of people think it's not real, but it is actually a real thing. And um, Dr. Persinger was doing these experiments where, and he had this like janky old, like um, motorcycle helmet <laughs> and he put on people's heads and, and, and then people are still doing this experiment and um, it st- stimulates your front temple temporal lobe. And you, um, if you are a person who is religious it is reported that you uh, experience uh, God or you experience a sort of spiritual feeling. And then people who aren't religious uh, and who are skeptics often, well, people who aren't religious sometimes see like trolls and stuff, which is in the play, but then also the person being interviewed, what was interesting to me was a skeptic of all these things. And when she had the helmet on, she was like, nothing's happening, nothing's happening. 
but it's all tape recorded. And then when she came out of the room, she listened to her recording. And in fact, she was seeing and feeling and hearing. I don't think she was hearing, but seeing and feeling things that she was talking about into the tape recorder. But her skeptical side when she came out was like, yeah, nothing happened. I didn't see or feel anything. Um, wow. Yeah. So so that's why, uh, without giving away too much, the, the, the agnostic, the atheist, the agnostic, which <laughs> the scientist who really doesn't believe in religion at all uh, and is skeptical of this God helmet does have a vision of her father, a chi- has a, like a childhood, a happy childhood memory that's brought back. And um, I think, so anyways, that was kind of inspired by this skeptic on the radio who didn't, ex- who really was sure she had not had any kind of a strange experience in the helmet. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it, one thought that occurs to me listening to that story is that skepticism can become its own kind of faith, its own belief system mm-hmm. that, is is ultimately not you know being tested against the external reality as rigorously as maybe it thinks it is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's true of all of our all of our uh, belief si- systems and patterns. We can get real, and that's also what the play is about too. Which is mm-hmm. like, how can you know what your blind spot is if you can't see your blind spot? <laughs> Where are you kind of on this spectrum of of? Uh, credulity and skepticism about you know the supernatural whatever that is yes i this is very interesting because i am so into it but i don't i don't think i've ever seen a ghost or like people are like oh well you must you must have seen ghosts or i mean i've had weird feelings i've gone to into like buildings and been like someone has been murdered here not because it looks any certain way. You just feel something. I mean, I've never checked up to see if my belief was correct. <laughs> so I, uh, I, and I tend to believe a lot of things. I tend to believe that if we can't know it, if science can't know it yet, how do we know it's not there? Right. I also think that, yeah. And I guess I do believe in kind of like ESP and, um, I do believe in that, those kind of things. Like the, I think there's some kind of like cellular connection between people that is somehow transmitted. I don't know how it's transmitted, but yeah, that's where I am on that. Andrew, what about you? Where do you stand on the supernatural? Oh, I'm, I'm, I, I feel like I'm, I believe in the supernatural, but I, I'm, I'm religious. So I have like my, I have beliefs, you know, yeah. and, and I'm, I have very little, I find because I have like a, a, a fairly, you know, a coherent understanding of like what I think is the supernatural reality. I, I, I have very little patience for like people talking about astrology or whatever. Like, I'm oh. like, that's obviously not true because you know, yes. why would it be true? It's just the stars. Why would that affect your personality? And also why would a kind and loving God communicate to us through the stars? Yes. See, I love astrology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just see, I love, I love how people have different kind of modes that help them. But I do yeah. think the planet's pull of on the Earth, I think, does impact us. So we'll have to fight about that another time. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> um, there, there's a scene in the play that I found really compelling, which you describe as a Meisner-like exercise that uh-huh. Anne and Marianne do, but it's actually been kind of prescribed 
for them by their marriage counselor. Yep. Um, which I think is just like such a great window into the kind of inherent theatricality of therapy. Is that something that is kind of interesting to you? Oh, I love that. I actually, I love the, the way you uh, phrase that. I, I was not consciously thinking about that. I was consciously thinking about repetition and sight. Like how do we know what we know and how do we see what we see? And I do know that in therapy, um, I have not, I personally have not gone to couples therapy, but I have a lot of friends who have, and that there are these exercises, not this particular one, but similar ones where you really do have to do your homework and you have to sit and do a timer and you have to listen to each other. And um, so I kind of like that. I like that therapy, this is unrelated to what you were just asking, but I like that therapy has homework and that you, and that the homework is about listening. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those seeds, I mean, you know, the the text on the page is just them repeating the same thing over and over again. Um, <laughs> yeah. But you can really imagine that actors would have a, a great time trying to inflect those with different meaning each time. Yes, yes, they do. They do. And also, um, Jose Zayas, who has directed a bunch of the workshops of, of it, is very attuned to the musicality of it. And um, he's, you know, it's, that's the other reason this exercise was helpful for the play is that um, I think theater is uh, rhythmic and auditory and as well as visual and all the other things it is. But I wanted a way to have a rhythmic musical score almost. And repetition allows you to do that. Now within the repetition, there's definitely a, <laughs> meaning in in the ways that we're they're repeating back and forth the the language um so yes i do think that the actors have enjoyed that very much and and actually it's pretty pleasurable to watch to watch two people uh mirror each other in this kind of loaded way yeah um this play was a commission from playwrights horizons right yes did you have any i'm i'm always curious in like how people write commissions um did you have any sense of like wanting to write a playwrights horizons play oh wow that is such a good question i well, first of all they were like write whatever you want which is great mm -hmm. so they were like i was like i have this idea and uh you know i went in and told them they're like that sounds great but we want you to write whatever you want um so that's liberating but i definitely thought about the physical space the two physical theaters that are there i definitely thought about Many of the plays, I, I'm a big fan of Playwrights Horizons. I've, oh, I, yeah. Some of their plays have been, I think, some of the most groundbreaking in the last 10 years, like um, uh, Booty Candy, A Strange Loop, um, The Flick. Uh, I mean, there's so many more, but uh, mm -hmm. oh, uh, Marjorie Prime by Jordan Harrison. So, that, so I have m many times in that space seen things that I didn't understand, like seen things that are where the, the com combination of the narrative and the visual and the tempo was like a spell, like something happened that wasn't, um, that was bigger than the sum of its parts. And so I, I don't think I was thinking that when I started this play, but now that it's finished, <laughs> 
I, I a goal I have or a hope I have for this play is that it does that. We have not done a full production of it yet, so we don't know if it will do what I want it to do. But I want it to be bigger than the sum of its parts. And I feel like most of the groundbreaking work that they've done there at Playwrights Horizons has done that. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of this stuff has that kind of mystic quality to it where there's like something going on that you can't quite put your finger on. Yes. Yeah, for sure. So I thought those were probably influencing me more than I realized. I also wanted to write, uh, yeah, I was also challenged myself to write a small cast play, not because it was Playwrights Horizons. I just hadn't done it yet. I, I, all, most of my other plays are, have around seven people. And I was like, why seven? Why do I keep writing plays for seven people? <laughs> that seems like a limitation I've put on myself, uh, even though I was unconscious. But uh, so I was like, could I write something that traverses a lot of mental and spiritual and um, intellectual space that is only three performers? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You talked about wanting to go to Brooklyn College to kind of find a place that would encourage you to keep experimenting. And Mm -hmm. definitely experimental playwriting has been, you know, a a context for your work for a long time. Do you have any like desire to write a play that gets like a million productions all around the country or something? (laughs) Oh, yes, I do. And in fact, I also really love and admire uh, mainstream theater, like theater that follows a... um, that follows a more recognizable pattern because that is also then what you put in the recognizable pattern has to be great. (laughs) And um, so I, I have written, I wrote a play called I will be gone, which is also a ghost story. And that is fairly traditional in its structure. Um, And that was at actors theater of Louisville. Um, I don't, I don't know why it's not being produced all over the world. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, um, and then actually Tattooed Lady, the musical, um, I'm co-writing that with Max Vernon in the book. And it is definitely adventurous on a lot of fronts, but it is also, I think, has has the possibility to really uh, be popular outside of like a, a kind of experimental context. And so anyway, so in fact, and in fact, we are building it for a wide a wide audience but we're still all the content and all the vision is is uh, fairly um cutting edge content wise mm-hmm. um but it's not um i don't feel like we're doing anything insanely risky form wise if that makes sense i mean it's a little bit musicals are Musicals are weird. They're great, but yes, they're, they're weird. weird even yeah. the even the ones that are following a tradition traditional American musical form, it's still so weird. So, <laughs> and right. it's and it's kind of a, a miracle that any musical works. But when they do work, uh, I think they're they're uh, again kind of a magical thing happens that's bigger than the sum of the parts. Yeah, a, a trope of the classic Golden Age of American musical is the dream ballet, which is kind of a weird thing yes. to put on stage. Actually, yes. Like, 
musicals, even the most quote unquote mainstream, yeah, like Oklahoma or something, they're very weird. They're weird. And, uh, and actually, if you just read musicals on the page, they should not work. You're like, what? (laughs) But then when they happen, you know, they're pretty astounding. So, so yes, I would love to be in all markets. I, I think what I care about is writing something I care about. That is a cur- something I'm curious about. Sometimes it's more experimental in form and sometimes it's more, I don't know what the right word is, traditional, mainstream. What do you, what's a good word for that? Yeah, I guess mainstream. Yeah, I don't know. I've, I find this really interesting. It seems like there's kind of like an attitude that some more experimental theater people have that is sort of like contemptuous of mainstream theater. Mm-hmm. But like a lot of mainstream theater, especially now, is really good. Like there's stuff on Broadway. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing on Broadway now now, but yeah. like there's stuff on Broadway in the past 10 years that is great. And, yes. you know, I hopefully like Strange Loop will go to Broadway. And if it does, that'll be the best thing on Broadway ever. And yeah, like, it's you know, suppo- like, it, yeah, it's supposed to. So yeah, yeah, I know a lot of um, a lot of experimental theater uh, influences the mainstream and or finds itself in the mainstream eventually because that maybe the mainstream caught up to it or, <laughs> and this is, uh, you know, for, for my, uh, colleagues and friends, it's happening, but I think 50 years ago, it probably happened a hundred years ago. You know what I mean? Like we, yeah. we think it's new that the new stuff is finally getting to Broadway, but you know, Gertrude Stein was on Broadway with yeah. an, uh, with an opera, you know, and and Florine Stedheimer did the sets. It's like, you know, and and O'Neill when he was first, you know, O'Neill's a big weirdo too. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so I think the weirdos have get there too. Yeah. Um, getting back to the play, I think one of the things that I found really sort of squirmy about it um, is like as a person who has like sincere religious beliefs, yeah. the idea that you could like induce a mystical experience with a with a helmet yes is sort of uncomfortable to me in a, yes. in a way that sometimes like hearing people describe their experiences of psychedelics can be uncomfortable to me because i'm like yes. man you sound a lot like Teresa of avila right now and like yes. that leads yes. to some dangerous questions is that something that you were kind of consciously exploring um yes and i want to hear more about your experience in a second because i would i actually am deeply curious um i love Teresa de avila i love all of the women who had these sort of like amazing spiritual experiences that were in their bodies. Um, And so for me, again, blind spot, because I'm not totally religious (laughs) for me, I'm like, of course it's in your brain. And of course the brain can stimulate it because it, it exists just like we, I mean, this is me, Aaron Courtney, not, not the characters in the play, but like um, if God exists, then of course he's in the brain and of course he can be stimulated just the same way we can smell something. If you stimulate a part of the brain or we can hear something, um, those are, these are all things that are in the world. So for me, it, 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 it felt very inclusive of deeply religious people. But so it's very helpful for me to hear that. In fact, (laughs) it was, it's off putting. Would will you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's just like, I don't know. I mean, I think it partially has to do with like death that I, I want to believe yeah. that my experience of the world is not finally just biological. 
yeah. because that makes me think that when I die, I'll just die, which yeah. I don't want to die. I'm yeah. very against that idea yes, of dying. Yes. I'm not looking forward to that at all. So I feel like if if I if I think of mystical experiences as a sort of breaking through of the spiritual world into the physical uh-huh. rather than as something that just solely exists as the physical world, then that seems like, okay, so there is definitely something beyond, you know, this, this mortal world. Uh, right. Whereas if it's, if it's just something that happens in your brain for whatever reason, because you're in mm-hmm. the 14th century and you're, you know, you're deathly ill and you're Julian yes. of Norwich or whatever, then that yes. seems like, I don't know, maybe it's just, just a hallucination, but uh-huh. I don't know if maybe just is a, is a weird word in yes. that context. I see what you're saying because you're right. Then that if if it's if it's only uh chemicals in your body, then that is really upsetting. <laughs> but we are biological machines that navigate the world, both spiritual and physical and intellectual, through our through our chemicals. So mm-hmm. so I definitely see it the the first way you were talking about it, where it is about um uh our chemical brain, neurological brains are processing this spiritual force and presence and our biological bodies will die. And whatever the spiritual world is or that, uh, that our, you know, souls will go, will go to, or our, you know, depending on one's beliefs, uh, is, is outside the body. So anyways, I just think it's a way of processing it. Yeah process it's how our brain processes it as opposed to our brain inventing it another theme of this play is trauma and both of the main characters experienced uh traumatic murders of their of one of their parents Mm -hmm. uh in in their childhood and i feel like trauma has often been kind of latent in your plays but it seems like it's more explicitly a part of this one Mm -hmm. um what kind of interested you in that theme um i think two things uh Again, back to childhood when I was growing up, my mom ran a child abuse prevention center and my dad is a criminal defense attorney. And so <laughs> dinner topics wow. were often about were often about uh, addiction, violence, um, incarceration, uh, just kind of as facts that happen to people. I mean, the people are either victims or 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 the the perpetrator of the of the crime. But, um, so same as you were talking about with the prayer before bed, where it's like, if I should die before I wake, it's like their daily life was about, uh, meeting people pretty much on their, one of their worst days in relationship to violence and trauma. And then, and sometimes healing and recovery. I mean, certainly in my mom's work, it was around the recovery, but even as a criminal defense attorney, you are, depending on why the person and how the person committed the crime, there can be a journey of, of um, recovery coming out of a kind of a traumatic moment. So uh, I just listened and I was like, it, it just, uh, it really went in. And then later uh, they were, my parents were like, why do you write such depressing and dark plays? And I, and I said, hello, what, what are your jobs? Like your, your, both of your tolerance and, and interest in meeting people in, in a very dark time is really high. And they were like, Oh, (laughs) they hadn't thought of it. Wow. (laughs) Another thing about the play is that the characters all seem to be 
very concerned with safety and with feeling safe mm-hmm. um, as a response to their trauma and kind of setting up these very elaborate mechanisms of safety. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that you sort of saw discussed in your childhood home as well? Uh not so much. Uh, also, my family is pretty Irish. And so sure. <laughs> so there's a lot of like, it's going to be fine. Just tell a story about it. It's going to be fine. I think it was more my brain chemistry is, is uh, uh, I have suffered from depression and I'm on antidepressants and I'm uh, very open about that because I feel like it's, it's just reality. And I, I, I think it's important for people to, if, if medication helps to take medication. So since I've been on antidepressants, I'm less, um, uh, fearful, but I spent a lot of my life just very, very afraid of everything. And even very simple things were really scary to me. And so my brain did work to create systems to help me be less afraid. So, um, I think the earlier plays, it was more operated on a kind of, um, loosey goosey level. <laughs> and now as I get older and, uh, and I also love systems and, you know, and I love people healing and I love people, you know, uh, working to make their lives better. So, um, so now it's a little, this play does definitely have the most, um, concrete, um, examples of people really methodically working towards healing. But also of course it was written, you know, right after Trump was elected and, uh, you know, the increase in, uh, not the increase, the awareness of the violence against black people, um, you know, institutionalized racism on all levels, but specifically with police violence. And I was like, you know, the whole country felt like, and then now the pandemic, like everybody is like, okay, we are not safe. (laughs) And we (laughs) like, uh, you know, and we need to figure out ways to, feel safer. And even people who voted for Trump, they weren't feeling safe either. Mm-hmm. So anyways, I'm interested in the ways that people try to feel safe. And sometimes it is positive ways that people work to feel safe. And sometimes it's negative ways. Yeah, And, and oftentimes it can be hard to know whether the ways that you're keeping yourself feel safe are positive or negative. Exactly. That is exactly the question. Um, one of the other things that is interesting to me about the play is its discussion of kind of scientific ethics and, uh, without spoiling too much, one of the scientists sort of loses sight of the, the human reality of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is also something that artists sometimes do. Is that something that you worry about in your work? Um, I don't. I don't feel I worry about that. I probably should worry about that more. <laughs> but I <laughs> but I definitely is uh But do you feel bad for your characters? Oh, for my characters or for my collaborators? Oh, either way. But but <laughs> I, for, for me all the time I'm like I I will often be like, oh man, this character that I really like is sure being a jerk in this scene. Maybe I'll just make him be 10% nicer. Which oh, is maybe yeah. not like the best way to create no. compelling drama, but yes, I never feel really bad for my characters. No, I feel like uh, it's a place where I let people be horrible, um, and it's very uh, releasing. But I do sometimes worry about the actors who have to play these people, and mm-hmm. then and the directors who have to like 
create the environment for them to play these people, which, I mean, it's not like they're the most heinous people in the world, but, but uh, there is, you know, violence like in map of virtue that is, you know, not fun. And so, <laughs> so anyways, I guess I worry more about the collaborators than the, than the um, characters, but then uh, the ethics and science that came up in this play because I showed it to a draft to a bunch of scientists and they gave me really good feedback around um, specifically scientists who are studying using human subjects and sort of the ethical dilemmas that happen in that case. So, so that particular strand in this play came from sharing it with scientists and realizing and psychiatrists and realizing how for any scientist or person who's been a subject watching the play, if you, if I didn't address it, it was going to be, an incredibly un, um, yeah, unsafe experience or uninteresting experience because it's such a big part of that, of that world. What else did the scientists say when you showed them your play? Oh, they were great. They were great. They, uh, that was the main thing that they encouraged me to continue to put in and continue to explore. They, uh, very kindly, I don't know if they were, they very kindly said I got the science correct, which was, mm-hmm. uh, I can't imagine that I actually did, but I guess to the degree that the science is in there, they said I got it right. And then they said, less science, more theater. Mm. They said, you're, you've explained all the science appropriately and accurately, but we all go to theater for like this human experience and you just cut just a little less exposition basically. And, um, that was a great, that was a great note. I love that they felt empowered to give you like an artistic note. Oh yes. Because this group is called new, right. And they're out of Columbia and they are all scientists who write. They are all like neuroscientists and psychiatrists and, uh, they're, you know, doctors, but they also write either, um, fiction, nonfiction, you know, creative work, um, popular science. And so they are specifically a group of scientists who write. So even though none of them are playwrights, they also were our fans of theater and they go see theater. And so they, they had opinions about what they like as audience. So it's good. Very helpful. how do you get connected with that group? Oh, so actually, I don't know if you read in the back of the book, the interview in the back um, is with uh, Jose Zayas and Carl Eric Fisher is a MD psychiatrist and he also teaches at uh, Columbia. He writes at Brooklyn Writers Space. And I mm. he was is writing a wonderful book about addiction. His he specializes in addiction um, treatment and he is writing a wonderful book. And he came Brooklyn Writers Space has a reading series well, we used to and we hope to soon again. <laughs> and uh, he came and he and his um, wife, and I read some of Anne, Fran, and Marianne. And he was like, you know, so excited. And he was like, you, would you like to come be part of our, not be part of our group, but be a guest in our group. And we could read the play and we could give you feedback. And I was like a hundred thousand times. Yes. So. That's so, fantastic. So there's a little bit of luck involved with that. Well, Aaron Courtney, I've already taken up so much of your time, but thanks so much for being on New Books and Performing Arts to talk oh, about Anne, Fran, and Marianne. Thank you so much. And uh, I feel like I had—I was supposed to double back to something with you that I wanted your opinion on. 
Was it was it about oh, it was gosh. about religion? We did talk about the religion in the play. Yeah, we talked about that. Okay. So I guess we well, got let me know if you have any if you have anything you want to ask me. <laughs> yeah, I, I just think it's as I said before we started talking recording, I just am really appreciative that you are uh doing this and that you're bringing, you know, performance people together to talk while while we're in um you know, we're coming out of quarantine. <gasps> I remember now what I wanted to ask you. Great. Oh, here's my question for you, Andy Boyd. Why do you want to make your characters n- likable? And how how can you, or, or, or whatever, like you don't want them to do anything horrible. And, and what are you doing to try to, uh, I mean, you don't have to change that. You certainly, you should, you should write sure, the place sure. you want to write. But I am yeah. curious. I I think um I think part of it is that I think people will think I'm a bad person if my characters are mean to each other. Mm-hmm. Um but I also I so I'm working on one play now where I need one character to like another character after a scene where all the characters have a big fight. Mm-hmm. Um and I just did a reading of the play and somebody said I don't think that character would like that character after mm-hmm. that character said all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but I, I like people who've said bad things, so I don't know. That's exactly right. We do not always operate in our best interest. So I think sometimes when people give feedback like that, it's okay to ignore it (laughs) because I think we, we still fall for people who've said bad things or love people who've said bad things. Um, so I, I encourage you to keep listening to this you know, the narrative you want to put out there. And it's important to listen to people, but you don't have to actually take their advice. Oh, I, and then that, I have one last thing to say, which is Great. in, in a, a, I'm in a writer's group with Club Thumb, Club Thumb Writers Group. And this, so even though I say to you, oh, I love making my characters do horrible things. <laughs> I, for many, many years, hated any characters to have a major conflict on stage. So they could do bad things, but they couldn't have a, real argument on stage. And so with Anne, Fran and Marianne, I kept not writing the scene where they, where they really argue after the, the bad thing that happens, which we won't say what it is. And uh, all the writers in the group were like, Aaron, you have to actually write that argument. You can't just end the play. And (laughs) they're like, you're ramping up to this argument and you, you're not writing it. And so it did take me like, like six months to actually write that argument. So even though I'm saying to you, um, you know, I guess that seems like what you're saying, you're saying like put the conflict in the play. That's part of, that's part of life, right? Yes. But I'm just saying, I also avoided it for a long time. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's always interesting to me. It's like, I always am interested in plays that try to have scenes that aren't built around conflict because that does Mm. seem like so much the default. Um, I actually, this is like way off topic now, but um, whatever. Uh, I, I, when I was in grad school, Sarah Rule came in to talk to us, and I heard her her on a podcast talking about. Yeah, she's the best. Yeah, Um, I'd heard her on a podcast talking about something that Maria Irene Fornes said to her, which is, uh, people think that uh, everybody wants something all the time. That's not true. That's only true of Americans. (laughs) And and I, I asked her if I was like, did this. Would you like to tell us more about the context of that? And she said, you got the quote wrong. It's Americans and criminals. <laughs> oh, br- that is not off topic at all. That is yeah. a, a beautiful quote. <laughs> and I think I think this is part of why 
most of my plays, I was avoiding conflict because I was like, we're not always running around stating what we want and trying desperately to get it. But sometimes, sometimes we do have to do that in a, sometimes a play requires it. The story requires it. So then you have to do it. Um, I think, I think that's a great note to end on. Thanks. Thanks again so much for being on the program, Aaron Courtney. Thank you. Do you go by Andy or Andrew? I go by Andy. Yeah. Andy, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Um, and, uh, you know, I can't wait to listen to your other podcasts. Mm -hmm.